This morning we turn to the sixth message in our series from Genesis, and our title is God's Agreement with Mankind. Genesis 9, 8 through 17, and we will be referring back to some portions in the eighth chapter of this book as well. Mr. Webster defines a covenant this way, a binding and solemn agreement made by two or more individuals, parties, etc., to do or keep from doing a specified thing. Now, if you have your Bible open to chapter 9, beginning at verse 9, notice how many times God speaks of this agreement or this covenant. I establish my covenant with you. Verse 11, I will establish my covenant with you. Verse 12, and God said, this is the token of the covenant which I make between me and you. Verse 13, I do set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth. Verse 15, and I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you. Verse 16, that I may remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is upon the earth. Verse 17, and God said unto Noah, this is the token of the covenant which I have established between me and all the flesh that is upon the earth. No less than seven times in those few verses does God speak of this everlasting relationship, God's agreement with mankind. Now here is a sample of a contract or a covenantal agreement. I take you, Maggie, to be my wife, and I pledge before God, our families, and these friends to love you always, when you are ill and when you are well, when we have little and when we have plenty, when there is sorrow and when there is joy. I will cherish you and nourish you in the Lord and promise to put Christ first in every part of our life. That is a covenant. That is an agreement. God made a covenant with man. Now, God's covenants differ in a sense because God's covenant is a solemn binding promise by which he freely binds himself in man's behalf, not a mutual agreement between two parties on the order of human covenants. God says it, and it is established. It only takes his word. That's the only difference between his covenants and ours. Now, you understand what covenants are, contracts. Some of you have put your name on one for a home to live in. Others of you have put your name on a contract for a car to ride in. A washing machine to wash your clothes in. I hope you do not have many of those. But that is what we are talking about today. People sign contracts. God made a contract with man. And he signed it with a rainbow. And every time we go out and see the rainbow in the cloud, that is God's signature, that is God's contract, God's pen has written. And what a wonderful agreement it is. Now, why did God do this for man? After 
the failure of Adam and Eve, the murder of Cain over Abel, his brother. After we read in the sixth chapter that the world was so wicked that God repented that he had made man, why did God make this agreement with mankind? Well, this is one of the most exciting portions of Scripture that I think we could share with one another because it answers the question of why God would do that. And I hope you get it. When Noah left the ark, he had many things to do. Everything around him was destroyed. I suspect that there was even a great stench on the land after all the death and the destruction the flood had brought. What do you suppose you would have done the first thing walking out of that ark? Would you have been concerned about building a place to rest first, a home? Would you have been interested in planting crops? I wonder what you would have done first. I want you to see what Noah did first. In a sentence, Noah put God first. He built an altar and made a great sacrifice offering unto the Lord. That is found in the 8th chapter and the 20th verse. Noah built an altar unto the Lord. And in verse 21 is God's response. God smelled the sweet savor, and the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake. Giving priority to God has always been a wise thing. We say God answers prayer, and this is true. And we believe in prayer. But this passage of Scripture teaches me something even beyond that. That God acts in response to obedience and thanksgiving. The foremost thing between man and God is thanksgiving and obedience, not prayer. I do not want to destroy anybody's well-laid theology and well-laid doctrine, but I want to say it again. The most important thing in this contractual agreement is thanksgiving and commitment, obedience unto God. Which is better, to beg and plead for things or to live the way Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 6, of Matthew, verse 33, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. You see, what I discover in my relationship with people is that they're always asking for things. God, you've got to do this for me. You have to do that for me. God, don't you see this need in our family, this need in our life? What is God wanting? He wants your thanksgiving, and he wants your obedience before he wants your prayers. You remember what Samuel said to Saul, obedience is better than sacrifice. Saul was disobedient. The sacrifice meant nothing. 
because Saul was disobedient unto God. I want us to catch this great truth out of this first book in the Bible. And there are two basic points, if you are taking notes on the back of your bulletin, two things that we will evaluate. Number one, man needs God's blessing. And number two, man's response to God's blessing. After the sacrifice that Noah made, God renewed the commandments given to man at the first. Notice in the latter part of chapter 8 how God repeated for Noah what he had said earlier. He reiterated his promises to man. And God is sovereign, so he can do that anytime he wants. Daniel said in Daniel 4, The Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men. God chose to bless man. God isn't afar off, aloof, away. He ruleth in the kingdom of men. Isn't that interesting? God lives with men. God rules with men. The only requirement is obedience to this covenant-making God for the blessing to be ours. Obedience. There are those in our world that believe each person is on an automatic pilot, that you can't do anything about your fate. Whatever will be, will be. Que sada, sada. The Muslims have a word for it. It's kismet, K-I-S-M-E-T. It means it is fate. You couldn't change it. You couldn't do anything about it. It's kismet. It's fate. This was the attitude of one fellow who believed every step was planned. He happened to fall down a long flight of stairs, and when he hit the bottom, he picked himself up and said, Boy, am I thankful that's over. God made us people of choice. We can obey or disobey. We can keep the covenant with God or we can break the covenant with God. We have the power to choose. Satan went his own way. Isaiah tells us that he exalted himself above God and Satan or Lucifer said, I will be like the Most High. I will. Cain wouldn't bring the proper offering. He said in part, I will do it my way. Pharaoh was the same way. When God made bare his arm to Pharaoh, Pharaoh would not come into subjection or obedience to this powerful God. Not big, powerful Pharaoh. Saul was like that. Although he began so well, he finished so poorly with the sword in his belly because Saul was filled with pride and would not come in obedience to God. Judas fits the same category. He had a choice, but his choice was, I want money, I want to get ahead, I don't want a cross. I want to get ahead, and he chose that path, and Satan entered his heart after he chose that path. 
There is a long line of Bible characters revealing the fact that man can choose his own way. Adam and Eve were not puppets. God did not put them in the garden dangling on the end of strings. God is not willing that any should perish, 2 Peter 3.9 says. Jesus talked about the broad way that leadeth to destruction and the narrow way that leads to life. How do you find it? By choice. God gave us the power to choose. So when we blow it, God steps in and tells us clearly, I'm for you. I'm not against you. I've made an agreement with you. Even after this horrible flood, this horrible destruction, even after the sin of man and the disobedience of man, I want you to know that I'm for you. I'm not against you. Isaiah picked it up in chapter 53 of his prophetic book, verses 4 through 6, and said, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities, our choices. The chastisement of our peace was upon him with his stripes. We are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all by our choices. God came in and said, even though you have rebelled, even though there is iniquity upon you, I have laid on Jesus the iniquity of you all. That's my agreement, and I will not pull it back. And I'll put a rainbow in the cloud to ever remind you of it. I'll never destroy man by a flood again. I will be gracious to man. God is a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. His grace binds him to carry out his promises. And verse 1 of chapter 8 of Genesis says so beautifully, and God remembered Noah. And God remembered Noah. Every rainbow brings us a visible manifestation of his promise. You remember when we were going through Revelation in the early chapters, in chapter 4, verse 3, there was a beautiful picture of the throne. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. Even the culmination of this age is primarily concerned with salvation, not with destruction. In Genesis, he puts a rainbow in a cloud. In Revelation, the last book of the Bible, there is a rainbow around the throne. Why is it there? God is saying, I have an everlasting agreement with you. You're here because of my grace and my mercy. Hallelujah. Now, I have had people come to me and say, wow, I've tried to read the Bible. And all I see is bloodshed and war. I don't want anything to do with a God like that. My friend, wake up. If God had not told David to be a man of war, if God had not told people to go out and destroy the enemy, we would have been wiped off this planet long before now. God had to do that because of his covenant with man, because of believers on the earth. And he wanted to protect them and preserve them because he made a covenant with them. That's why there is the bloodshed in the Bible and bloodshed even in our day. We're in a battle. We're in a warfare. You can't get away from it. And it's not God's time yet to let fire destroy this earth. There will be 
a new heaven and a new earth, but not until after the millennial reign of our Lord Jesus on this planet for a thousand years. It will not come until after that time. He's made a covenant with this earth. You should not read those Old Testament passages and see a God of vengeance, but a God of love who's preserving us and helping us. And he wrote a, 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 a rainbow in the cloud to remind us that he would ever do this. Until that time of final judgment takes care of it all. God, in the midst of all of the decay and the wreckage and the debris that surrounded the ark, put one of the most beautiful things in the sky you will ever see. My friend, it's that way in your life. You may feel debris and wreckage and decay, but God is saying to you today, even with that, I have made a covenant with you. I put a sign in the cloud. God loves you. Yesterday morning, I saw just a little bit of the 700 Club. Pat Robertson had been teaching a bit, and then he said, and we'll be back in a moment, and normally that means a commercial, but on the 700 Club, it's an insert of something very important. And I watched with interest as the camera picked up all kinds of individuals in all kinds of situations. Children playing on monkey bars and on swing sets and a man standing on a street corner with a big stogie hanging out his mouth. And people sitting at a bar in a tavern. And people in all kinds of circumstances and situations. And the last line of this insert was, God loves you all. I thought, that's beautiful. That's right. God loves you all. And that was the message of that insert, that gospel commercial in that program. And that's the message of Genesis 8 and Genesis 9. God loves you all. In the midst of the debris and the chaos and the wreckage of our time, there is a rainbow in the cloud. God has made a covenant. He loves you. And he will come to you. Now, secondly, man's response to God's blessing. How do we act? When God says, I want to help you and heal you and do all these wonderful things in your life, how do we respond? A number of years ago, when a ship was wrecked in a storm off Evanston, Illinois, a group of students from Northwestern University endeavored to save the drowning passengers. One of those students was a young man by the name of Edward Spencer. Edward Spencer saved 17 people from the sinking ship. He would bring one to shore and dive back in and go after another. Seventeen times he did that. As he was being carried exhausted to his room at the university, he asked, did I do my best? Do you think I did my best? Years afterwards, Dr. Torrey was recounting this incident in a meeting in Los Angeles, telling about the story of Edward Spencer when a man interrupted him in the audience and said, to Dr. Torrey, Edward Spencer is here in this meeting. Dr. Torrey paused and invited Spencer to the platform. Amid loud applause, a gray-haired man slowly climbed the steps to stand by Dr. Torrey. He asked Edward Spencer if anything in particular stood out in his memory of the heroic rescue of those 17 people. Mr. Spencer said, only this, of the 17 people I saved, not one of them ever thanked me. 
God is pleased when he sees us, like Noah, gathering around an altar to give thanks and to dedicate our lives anew to him upon whom we depend for our very lives. But how many of us have really come to church today to do that? Isn't it interesting the way this service has progressed from the opening through Andrew's songs to say this very thing to us? What has been our purpose in coming to the house of God today? Do you know that whenever we come, there should be two predominant things? They are the things that Noah taught us in the beginning, thanksgiving and commitment, those two things. We come before God to thank him for the blessings of the past and to commit ourselves to him for the future. Things that constitute worship. Noah was thankful for escaping the flood. He built that altar to thank God for the protection that was given. And he thanked him for the opportunity to consecrate himself to God for the future. True worship involves these two elements, thanksgiving and consecration. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. He dedicated himself to that one thing because it was the greatest thing he had ever found. That's what worship is. In Romans 6.13, Paul said, Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin." but yield yourselves unto God. Build an altar. Yield yourselves unto God. Fulfill the agreement. Sign the contract. Yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. That's what we are here to do today. Richard Thompson, an evangelical free church pastor, suggests for all of us Four mitts, M-I-T-T-S. Mitts to warm us and secure us. Admit your need of a Savior. Submit your will to His will. Commit all things to His keeping. And transmit the love of God to others. I like those mitts. Admit your need of a Savior. We need God. We cannot fight the battle alone. Submit your will to his will. Do not fall into that trench of trusting self. Submit your will to his will. He knows the best. He knows the way that I take, Job said. Commit all things to his keeping and transmit the love of God that he shares with you to others. That's why we have come into this place today. Spiritual survival is the theme of Noah's trip to that altar. Spiritual survival, thanksgiving and commitment, essential to our development. Thanksgiving and commitment. The last days are upon us. Do you need any proof of that? We are in the last era of history. Secular humanism is in line with the spirit of the last days. Romans 1 tells us so. Men will trust in themselves. Men will do that which is unseemly with other men, women with other women. Man will basically trust in himself. And so we have the religion of secular humanism today. 
And if I want to alert you to anything this morning on this wonderful, beautiful day, it is that humanism seeks to capture your attention, seeks to get you to serve yourself, to serve man, and forget the God who makes everything possible. Be alerted to that today. Draw near to God and draw near to his word of faith. Through his gift of faith and the power of his spirit, we must combat this doctrine, this diabolical scheme, and learn spiritual survival. How many of you, since we last met in this place, have truly built an altar to God to thank him for the very life that you have? How many of you have committed everything that you are and everything that you have of late to the Lord? There is an altar in this church. How long has it been since you bowed your knee at that altar and have said to God, Here I am, Lord. You made an agreement with me. I must respond to that agreement in obedience as Noah. I give my thanksgiving and I come as a burnt sacrifice before you. The tendency is to trust in self. From the American Humanist Manifest 2, Subject religion, first article, paragraph two, page three. We find insufficient evidence for belief in the existence of a supernatural. It is either meaningless or irrelevant to the question of survival and the fulfillment of the human race. That's what they say in their manifestos. There's a surging tide of humanism in our society today. Man's dependence upon man. He becomes his own God. We don't need that altar. We don't need to thank him. We're doing it. We're sufficient in ourselves. Noah teaches us one basic thing in this glorious passage of Scripture that if we are to know God, if we are to experience God, if we are to experience the revival that Pastor Randy mentioned earlier in this service, we are going to have to build that altar and get to that altar on a regular basis and stop trusting in ourselves that we must live a life of commitment to God's Word. We must dedicate ourselves and our entire families to regular worship and to Bible study in the corporate structure of the church family. We cannot afford to sleep. We must come out and build our altar unto the Lord, thanking Him for His mercy, His grace, His agreement with us, and obediently commit to Him everything that we are and everything that we have. Yesterday, Pastor Randy went to the state capitol to appear on a panel at Junior State. They wanted a representative of our staff. On this panel for these high school students was a priest, a secular school administrator, and our youth pastor. The theme of this particular seminar was teaching morals in public schools. The subject of drugs and sex and all of the rest. There was a strong reaction to biblical approach. I happened to be in the office when he came back from that session and he looked a little bedraggled. I said, How did it go? Well, it was hard. Well, I asked a little bit about who was on the panel. He said, Well, the priest. Well, how was his response? And his reaction was apathetic. 
Well, how about the school administrator? He said he just didn't seem to be aware of the need at all. So guess who got to do most of the talking? And who had to handle most of the rebuttal? And there was rebuttal. Derogatory, fierce rebuttal. Now, if you've ever been in a situation like that, you know how draining it is. But I want you to know we Coles can handle that. We, we know how to handle that. But it is draining. So then, pondering this situation further, Randy said, there were numbers of young people that came after this derogatory, fierce debate on the validity of the Bible and my position and the authority of that position. Numbers came afterward saying how much they appreciated the stand and how much they appreciated the approach. But then Pastor Randy said to me, but Dad, they were silent during the debate. It was only the voice of the other side during the debate. Not a one said anything who believed what I was saying. When he shared that with me, I could not help but think of this truth out of Genesis and relate it to our present problem. There are born-again Christians who say, I don't want to get involved in moral majority or anything that deals with politics. My dear friend, will you wake up and open your eyes? We are in a fierce battle. We are in warfare. And if the side that knows the truth does not stand up and say, so help me God, as Martin Luther said at the Diet of Worms, so help me God what I have written, I have written, we won't have anything to write. We are involved in a battle to the death, and we need to wake up to that and commit ourselves to truth, or we will no longer have truth. Do you not see that? Do you not understand that's been the story from the beginning? Noah somehow sensed that. Noah somehow realized that the thing he had to do was lift his voice in thanksgiving to God, commit himself anew to God, build that altar before he went about building a house or planting his crops. He needed to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things would be added unto him. But what are we doing? What have we done? Where have we spent our time? Whenever God sees these two elements of thanksgiving and commitment, it is, as verse 21 in chapter 8, a sweet savor in his presence. What is needed today? We need to wake up. If God has said anything to me about this service and about this day, it is the tendency we have to go to sleep. That all things continue as they were. 
Man is getting better. We'll somehow make our way through. No. Because man will not stop and say, Thank you, God. It's you that has given us what we have. Man will not stop to commit himself to this God of victory, this God of covenant. Whether it be an individual, a church, or a nation, if this is not done, if these two things are not practiced, if this covenant is not practiced, we will end up as Rome ended up. We will end up as civilizations before us have ended up, and we're on our way as a nation, but it's not too late. That's what I want to end with today. It's not too late. There's a lot of debris around us. There's a lot of stench around us. There's a lot of destruction around us. But it's not too late. We still have the ingredients to build an altar. We can still lift holy hands unto God and thank him for his blessings and say, God, if you can use me, here I am. I commit everything I am and everything I have unto you. And you won't need to be praying prayers. God, give me this, give me that, give me this, give me that. God will provide for you what you need. I spend very little of my time asking God for anything, but I spend my life trying to please Him and thank Him for the blessings that He doth so freely bestow. That's what I learned in these early chapters of Genesis from Noah. When he came out of that ark with all of the pressures facing him to take care of his family and all of the animals that came out with him, he stopped and built an altar and gave thanks to the Father and committed himself with sacrifice unto God. There are numbers of you who need to follow that example. We as a church must follow that example. We're not here playing games, my friend. Some of you are living totally contrary to the concepts of this book, and you know. Conviction fills your heart. You know you need to make some changes. God gave you a will. You can come out of that ark and do one of two things. You can build the altar, or you can go do it your own way and forget God. But I ask you to remember, he made an agreement. He signed it with that rainbow pen, and he will keep it if we will acknowledge him. Let's bow our heads in prayer, shall we? Our Heavenly Father, we pause at this moment to thank you for the truth of your word, to thank you that you're merciful and gracious and kind, we come humbly to seek your face. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us for our pursuits of everything that is temporal and so very little of that which is eternal. Forgive us for taking the glory for ourselves and not giving you the thanks. Forgive us for not wanting to be involved in the fray God, help us to rise up as Noah and build that altar and be touched anew by your holy presence and power. Thank you for hearing us and being kind to us.
even in our failures and our sins. While our heads are bowed and before I say amen to the prayer, I want to have those of you who know that you need to do these two things today, give thanks and commit to God. I want you to stand to your feet for my final prayer, to rise and by standing say before God, God, I have been negligent. I want to remedy that. I want to fulfill the other end of the agreement. I thank you for your mercy and grace, and I give you thanks and commit myself to you today. I'm sorry for the way I have been living and doing. I need to come. You may be a member of this church. That doesn't matter. God's Spirit is speaking to your heart. I ask you to stand right now all over the building for prayer. Just rise to your feet. I'm coming to Jesus. I'm building an altar. I'm rising in faith. Stand and remain standing for prayer. Wherever you are, just rise and stand in the presence of God and by standing saying, Lord, you know my heart. You know where I'm at. And I rise to be helped and touched. I bring to you the commitment of my life. I give you time to stand. Think about it. People are still rising. I give you time to rise for prayer. I don't want you to do it quickly, without thought. Lord, you know my heart. You made an agreement with me, and I'm grateful. I want to fulfill my end. I come for your help, your forgiveness, the release of your power in me. Give him thanksgiving. Give him commitment. And all things will be added unto you. Are there others that need to stand? Do it now. Do it now. Before we pray. God bless you. God bless you. In the balcony. On this main floor. God bless you. God bless you. Jesus is already touching you. The very fact that you have stood opens the door to his blessing. Even before our prayer, he's touching you. He's helping you. He's putting strength into your life right now. Just begin to thank him for it right now. He loves you. He's made an agreement. It's not his will that we perish, but that we be saved and be effective in our living. He's there now, helping you, touching you. Glory to God. Just respond to him. Now, Father, we bow in prayer once again, lifting these dear friends to you. Lord, I ask that you will touch them mightily from the top of their head to the soles of their feet. May they now feel the anointing of the Holy Spirit. May they know that you are faithful to them. God, we ask that you will forgive them right now of anything that needs forgiveness, that they will feel clean, washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. They will know that everything is all right. The Lord has undertaken in their life. Lord, we praise you for receiving us. We give you our thanksgiving. We build an altar of praise under thy name. You have never failed us, not once. And we know you never will. God, I pray for this whole congregation that we will not bow at the altar of humanism, man's trust in man, but we will always bow at your altar of contrition, your altar of sacrifice. Hallelujah. Thank you for it. Help us to be men and women of God, full of faith and power and the Holy Spirit.
to stand as beacons in this dark day for the glory of your name. Amen.